workaholic. I don't think you yeah. knew this. You're a workaholic. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I must care. I mean, I'm choosing it, right? But yeah. well, I don't know. I don't know. Well, good for you. You care about your I, job. I care about my job, <laughs> apparently. I don't oh, know whether crap. it's that I care about my job, but it's just the one thing I have to care about, so I'm going to do it. That's a, that's and the plants, Dan. What about the plants? Don't forget the plants. Don't let the don't let the, the terror seep in. You have plants. Oh, as well oh, as a job. The, are you saying plants or plants? I am saying plants. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah good. You're that like, makes wow. sense. I don't want any plants. Yeah. <laughs> plants, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The tomato plants are alive and the... Uh, and uh, everything is flourishing. We've actually had some rain recently. Mm. Yes, plants. Mm. Mm. We've been getting the like, like this past week, the like, all day it's sunny and like mid seventies, like low twenties, I guess, in Celsius. And then just like sporadic fifteen minute downpours, and it's just like, oh, the plants just love it. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's just like Jack doesn't have to forget about watering them, so they all get as much water as they need, and then it's just warm. It's just perfect. <laughs> um, Final I like how it's update. the plants that love it. I, lo- I like how it's the mm. plants that love it and not you that loves it for not having to water the plants, you know? <laughs> I like this having the, a thing This to is do. the nature of your joint metabolism with the plants, <laughs> is that, like, you enjoy it, they enjoy it, everybody's yeah. happy. Everybody's happy, yeah. more or less. Well, yeah, yeah. content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you literally metabolize them. And, uh, exactly, yeah. And then I bring hopefully. their bits that I don't eat back, end the metabolic <laughs> rift. Speaking of which, last broadbean update until fall, unfortunately. Broadbean plants, they're out. And I've saved, I I, I didn't <laughs> like harvest all of them quickly enough. So the ones that I wound up saving that like dried out on the vine, I wound up saving like, if I had to guess, probably about 100 beans that are like drying out right now. And it's like, I don't know if my allotment's even big enough if I only <laughs> wanted to grow beans. But anyways. But you're ready if you around, could. You have, yeah. you have the potential. Well, if I could. Boy, nice. if I could. You could send me some in the post. Oh, yeah, sure. Do they let you do that? Yeah, it'll be like return to sender. Uh, I don't I'll, know. I'll write your address. If, in any, if, anybody, if anybody works for Royal Mail, let us know. Are you allowed to post <laughs> to send scenes? <laughs> send beans in the post. I'll just write your address in a very tiny font on the bean. And stamp oh, on yeah, it and yeah, see yeah, if this, yeah. See if that works. Yeah. Stamp on one side, address on the other. <laughs> yeah, one bean. One stamp per bean, and then you pour them all into the, the last one. Postman's like, God damn it. I'm going to Dan's house again. Oh, okay. Well, Dan, <laughs> On that we're very back. Silly note. We're doing <laughs> It's a bit of a silly day, if I'm being honest. Yeah, feel yeah, a bit yeah, silly. Yeah. We're both being very... Well, actually, no. I haven't been feeling silly up to this point, so any amount this of them, Any amount of like ridiculousness. It might be a Joby ridiculous Alley. episode, but it's the episode that we need. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I need anyway. So. It's not the episode we want, but it's the episode <laughs> we need. Um, back doing another episode. And Dan, we're doing something a little bit new with the beginning of this. We're chatting about beans. We're going to give you the bean update. But of course, until about late October, you're not going to get any more bean updates. We had to do something to fill time. So I put out on Twitter and then also in our Discord, I just let people know like, hey, here's our email address, which is auxiliarystatements at gmail.com. Send us in some questions. These can be about anything. Um, and we'll do our best to answer them. Sort of like a mailbag thing that other professional podcasts do, right? So um, we got one that we're going to talk about today from a listener named Daniel. Daniel, thank you. Not, hopefully not you, Dan. Hopefully it's just you. <laughs> what a really interesting and considered <laughs> yeah, wow. question this person Daniel was sending. And a considered answer <laughs> what, what, as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yes, this one comes from Daniel. So Daniel says, methods of control have become much more sophisticated and subtle since Marx and Lenin's times. Simultaneously, the capacity of the bourgeoisie to implement this control has grown immensely. What do you think about the possibility of global revolution being forestalled permanently by a sufficiently brutal but competent dictatorship as a result of this? Um, so basically, a really good question, again, thank you, Daniel, um, about control and kind of like the possibility of either just sheer physical intimidation or, you know, more nuanced versions of control, like ideological stuff, permanently forestalling revolution. So I, yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to come out and just say no, just because I think that for a number of reasons, right? I think that economically, like the contradictions of capitalism are always going to come about. And I think that we've talked about on our show before about like, you know, uh, maybe the next thing that comes after capitalism isn't going to be socialism. There is, I don't think we necessarily believe in this teleology of like, it has to be socialism, but I do think that for a number of reasons, whether or not you believe in like a final crisis, you know, like a Grossman kind of thing, I do think that capitalism will eventually under its own weight collapse into something else. And I also think that when you think about the ecological question, um, it just can't keep appropriating our ecology in a way that it has been doing um, for the last couple centuries. Uh, on a permanent basis. So I think like, even if this amount of control was possible by the bourgeoisie over the working class, um, I think that other factors would come in and end capitalism anyway. But I guess the question is actually like, what about the possibility of an actual revolution being forestalled? Um, I also don't think that that is possible because I think that it does get to a point, whether you have like an immiseration thesis kind of thing where like, certain segments of the working class are just so pauperized that there's just nothing else that they can do. Um, you know, capital isn't able to be valorized. People don't have enough work. People are too poor, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The state's falling apart. Um, I do think that inevitably there are going to be revolutions and I don't think it is possible no matter how much violence or ideological control there is intimidation, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's possible to stop them. Um, I mean, we've seen them be forestalled, but I think that that's more of like an economic consideration. And even though you do see like elements of the working class kind of going against its own interest, um, you know, those are ideological questions. And I think in the end, like the material reality always has the final say. So I don't know. What, what do you think? Um, I sort of, I feel like um, the question of revolution is a, a political one, right? It depends um, how the political movement that's bringing about capitalism bringing about the revolution um, goes about undertaking that deed and what forces are pitted against it. I can sort of imagine a possibility of every effort at conscious political socialist revolution failing. I mean, we have seen it previously that the, the, um, the counter-revolution has won out in all previous cases of um, socialist revolution. There's no reason to think that that couldn't just be the permanent outcome. Uh, the, the question then becomes, as a result of that sort of uh, counter-revolutionary um, dictatorial measures to maintain the status quo, is it possible to permanently maintain capitalism? Um, and so I suppose then it comes down to this sort of like political determinist versus economic determinist distinction of um, what the revolutionary process will be like. Where is there an economic determinism that necessitates 
uh, a socialist revolution. Well, there's one that pushes in that direction, but it, I get. I would. I would like to think. I would say that it would always require some kind of like subjective political effort as well. Um, but you've pointed out what you've pointed out very clearly is capitalism can't last forever both because of its internal economic contradictions, perhaps if we believe in a permanent crisis, and then also the sort of like the relationship between capitalism and the environment. Um, does that then slot move into some kind of dictatorial, dictatorial regime that is represents some other type of mode of production? Uh, maybe. I mean, it comes back to the socialism or barbarism question. Maybe we get post-capitalist dictatorial uh, barbarism of some sort. But then I I um I don't feel comfortable predicting what future modes of production might be. Uh, Just a small prediction. Neo feudalism, or <laughs> I don't know what else. So yeah, I, I suppose perhaps those are my thoughts. And I guess it does. I guess that there's another reading of the question is like, is it is there a, is there is there a dictatorial reaction to, um a revolutionary moment that forestalls and precludes and prevents all future revolutionary moments from coming about, i.e. could the reaction to a revolutionary moment create both political and technological innovations which make permanent capitalist dictatorship possible? Um, I think we would probably also agree that the crisis of capitalism will also bring about continued shall we say proletarian reactions to that um so yes i i don't i i would think it unlikely that we have one revolution we have one more counter revolution and then the technology technology and the political impetus that comes from that makes revolution impossible in the future that seems unlikely is it possible for all revolutions to be thwarted well yeah cuz socialist revolution isn't an inevitability yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. I think well said. I think the one thing to, to maybe pause on is like, when we talk about revolution, what to maybe clarify our terms a little bit, because there's revolution, there's socialist revolution. I think that there are always going to be working class movements against capitalism, right? Like there are always going to be movements because the tendency of the working class is to, at least we hope to push for its own emancipation, but I don't think those are, or at least to push back against capital but they might not necessarily be socialist with a capital S, right? Like, and I suppose that that's kind of the job of like socialists is to kind of like help nurture those movements and like help them grow towards emancipation. Um, but I do think that there are always going to be revolutions. Again, another thing that's in this question is like global revolution. Like who knows? I don't know. It would be nice if it all happened at once. I don't see that happening just because of the nature of the capitalist economy. Things are different the whole world over despite being part of the same um, system. But yeah, I think that's about what I have to say about it. I think the energy is always going to be there as long as there's capitalism for a revolution, but whether or not it's socialist is kind of, you know, up to people. So we'll see. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really lingered on the idea of um, global revolution. I do wonder whether the sort of globalizing nature of um, capitalism and technology might lead to a more comprehensive global reaction. Like, is the global proletariat bourgeoisie rather in a position to be a more successful counter-revolutionary force? Um, it seems actually probably not. Like we see, It does seem like there is a disintegration of the um, 
united nature of the global bourgeoisie perhaps so um so maybe there's a glimmer of hope there we'll see is yeah. the answer we'll see <laughs> okay well that was good so yeah like we said email us with any questions they can be about anything communism capitalism anarchism dan's favorite ice cream which i don't know dan doesn't seem like much of an ice cream guy so you might not get a good answer if you ask that but auxiliary statements at gmail.com let us know and uh, we'll do our best to answer although we might not answer them very well hopefully we answer that one well. we'll see <laughs> um okay so dan on to the actual stuff for this week's episode what we read um i'm i'm like yeah this is gonna be an interesting one i think for sure so just up front what we read was an essay by somebody named nadrata who has a blog that we'll link to um in the description i always feel like such an asshole saying that um (laughs) but this piece that we read is called karl marx and indigenous critiques of capitalism um, it was published, I think, relatively recently, republished onto Cosmonaut. Um, if you want to, you can go listen to somebody read that out. It's read very, very well. Um, if you don't want to read it, you should read it or listen to it, whatever. Um, but it is, this essay is exactly what it says on the tin. It is um, kind of like talking about the interplay between Marx's thought, I think not necessarily Marxism, Marx's thought um, specifically, and indigenous radical critiques of capitalism. Um, and I found it absolutely fascinating. I think, um, you know, all of the caveats, two white guys, two settlers, and yes, Dan, I'm considering you a settler because you live in Cornwall now, two settlers (laughs) talking about, uh, you know, uh, indigenous thought. So, you know, all the caveats that come along with that, but I found this really fascinating and fulfilling. So yeah. what do you think? Yeah. I, I, similar. Yeah. I definitely have things to say about (laughs) <laughs> what you just implied about my <laughs> settler colonial status but i'll i'll I'll, uh, I'll leave those out for a second listen uh, when i came and visited you in cornwall i only heard like two cornish accents that's yeah all the, i don't say. know well, yeah where yeah where are the yeah i don't know well how many i know one <laughs> one cornish person maybe uh maybe a few more than that no two two definitely two definitely um you know who you are no um uh, yeah, I, I I similarly found this very thrilling, um, in the, in the sort of like um, in relation to the the detail of the piece, um, it was really interesting to see laid out very clearly um, what have been um, uh, indigenous criticisms of Marxism and have those replied to by a Marxist well-versed in Marxist theory and making an effort to show that although the two are not um, actual, aren't completely compatible with one another, there isn't this like, it's not that um, Marxism and indigenous critiques of capitalism are one and the same thing and uh, drawing out distinctions between them is completely wrong, but rather that they have a great deal of things to say to one another. Um, and in some ways that's quite provoking to us because like, it reiterates that question of Marxism being um, an open field of study rather than one that's being closed off. What it also um, invokes for me, again, are sort of like those repeat questions that we've asked ourselves on this podcast um, around uh, historical transition. And previously, we've toyed a little bit with the question of whether what the, the legacy of um, pre-capitalist if not like lived historical experience and at least like cultural historical um, 
experience can tell us about or teach us about a revolutionary process. So um, previously we looked at James Connolly and what he had to say about what he called Celtic communism, right? And the history of what could be learnt from um, the Celtic population of Ireland in response to the settler colonial imposition of capitalism by the English. Similarly, we've sort of talked a little bit or skirted around the idea of um, the place of the Russian peasant and how their experience external to capitalism might be allow for a sort of bypassing of a capitalist phase of history kind of thing. Uh, and similarly, this kind of fits into that um, uh, realm of thinking. So uh, yes, the fine detail of this piece is really interesting, but also it raises a lot of questions that we've also touched on in the past and was quite nice to um, see uh, broached again, I suppose. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of the connection with the James Connolly stuff. It's funny, I was I was just mainly thinking about this like mainly as an ecological piece because mm -hmm. I think that that's like how I'm personally able to engage with it a lot more. Um, but we'll get to all of that. So, yeah. yeah. So you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, the the thing that's interesting about this is that it's very much a, like a study of both of these things as very much like separate, right? Insofar as we can claim that there is such a thing as like a totality of singular, like indigenous thought or whatever. And here, like indigenous kind of means it's more or less like North American indigenous populations is what's being engaged with in this piece. Um, the author is kind of making the point that like these are not irreconcilable indigenous thought that is and Marxist thought. Um, but it's really interesting because in a lot of essays like this or pieces, you would get the author trying to make the point especially if they're Marxist, right? That like, um, and so this is why this thought, whatever they're talking about is compatible with Marxism. And here's why Marxism totally works. If you're looking at, you know, indigenous thought through a Marxist lens or something. And the author is actually being a lot more nuanced and saying that really you need to be looking at these things as independently valuable and as their own things. Right. And there are connections between the two. And that's kind of like another main point of the piece is being like, they're not as irreconcilable as you think, but the goal isn't to have, as they call it, like, a forced homogenous kind of like grouping of the two things into one kind of like, you know, blurred over like mesh of Marxist indigenous thought or whatever. Um, and they also make the point that like, if you're a Marxist and you're trying to do that, um, they say that you're just going to be another variant of like the same old colonizer, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because they started off by basically all of these indigenous radical critiques of Marxism, right. That are criticizing capitalism, but also of, of Marxism. And at first I was a little bit like, whoa, hey, you know, uh, hands off daddy Marx or whatever. But then, you know, they really get into it. And it's like, well, if you're looking at Marxism through this kind of teleological lens that a lot of Marxists have, right, as you were kind of just touching on of like, you know, we have like primitive communism, which is talked a lot about here. Um, and then we have like whatever feudalism or no, then we have like the ancient mode and then we have whatever feudalism was. And then we have capitalism. We're always moving forward, you know, in history and there's nothing really to be learned from the past, except for how transitions work, you know, and that's kind of it. But um, the author is saying that these two things, Marxism and indigenous thought are independently valuable. And as they said, um, I think they said something like the phrase they use is that they have related hearts. They're kind of, they're trying to do similar things, but in kind of different ways. Um, and again, I, yeah, these are, I was really convinced these are independently valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and have a lot to say to one another as well. Um, yeah, you're quite right. It's definitely the case that all of these criticisms that come from um, sort of like indigenous North American criticisms of 
Marxism can be read as criticisms of the Marxist movement and Marxist parties in North America, right? Or even um, a global communist movement that existed under um, the control of sort of Star the Stalinist USSR. So Marx is accused of being a sort of Promethean thinker and um, technologically determinist, someone who, and sort of historically determinist as well, someone who isn't really interested in um, historical or um, pre-capitalist or indigenous experiences, but rather is r interested in the um, teleological progression of history um, or Marxism is criticized as being a purely uh, colonial mode of thought or one which is seeking to homogenize or is uh, or, or Marxism is seen as something which celebrates the homogenizing nature of capitalism um, and what's detailed quite clearly here is how Marx is really none of those things um, and how his philosophy is much more expansive um, and in line with um, what is also what has been argued by indigenous philosophers and anthropologists and historians. Mm. What what did you make of all of the? Because um, a main a main theme of this is like discussing quote unquote like animism, right? Like you know, like pre modern or whatever, like approaches to quote unquote religion. Um, and I think that the author kind of makes a point that like religion kind of isn't actually really the right word for again, animism. And that when you're discussing a lot of this stuff, one thing that I found really fascinating is that it's really hard to not speak metaphorically when you're discussing like kind of um, indigenous thought towards philosophy or to science or to kind of any of these things. Um, and part of that, I think, is just because like we're so maybe like uh, formally subsumed or really subsumed into capitalism that like our brains are just fully wired to think in terms of like one very specific thing whether that's teleological like socialist thought or whether it's just like kind of positivism or anything like that um but i really found the uh, the discussions here of animism really really fascinating and the author kind of the main critique of marx that comes out of this other than a certain kind of anthropocentrism of his ecological thought is the kind of he just had no real interest in studying animism and doing real science to actually understand what it was, right? Like Marx viewed this idea of animism as something that wasn't yet advanced enough to dominate nature. So it worships nature like fools, right? Like, you know, these are people who aren't technologically able to dominate, you know, the forests and to cut them all down and to turn them into houses and to, you know, like destroy the landscape and kill all the buffalo or whatever, right? Like, and so they didn't, it was a question of like being advanced enough to dominate nature. Um, and he didn't necessarily, at least up until kind of the end of his life, where there is a bit of a turning point, view it as potentially utopian or predictive of like a new world. And um, Nadrada, the author here, comes out and it gives us a whole slew of, of indigenous thinkers who basically just blow that out of the water and is like, that's like complete crap and like just fake news all around, right? Um, and one of them specifically, Gregory Cahete, says that, you know, he kind of describes animism as thinking and being in harmony with the rhythm of spatially and relationally specific life and is one that is very, very, not just relational, but very participatory too, right? Like when you think about, you know, Christian religions, 
the way that you participate is I like I've never really been to church. So I'm just kind of guessing here. It's like you go to church, you get talked at, right? You get hassled and then you confess your sins or whatever. And then you go home and you read the Bible. That's how you participate in it, right? But in an animistic way of viewing the world, and you'll see why this, I think, kind of can't really even be called religion. It's just about living harmoniously with the rest of the world, right? And we'll get into a bit more of this when we talk, I think, specifically about ecological thought. But again, I think we can see why you do have to speak a little bit metaphorically here, because it is kind of hard to understand. I know that like a lot of scientific socialists or whatever will like roll their eyes when they hear words like harmony or, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like... Uh, the circle of life wasn't necessarily bought up here, but there was a metaphor that was like distinctly like that. Um, but I don't know. I, I did find, even though it was very metaphorical in the way that it was all described, I did find this very enlightening. And I think specifically the idea of spatial connection to like where you are spatially in the world, being connected to that part of nature and the kind of like participatory relational nature was really fascinating. And I think kind of jived a little bit with some of the ecological thought we've read, but yeah. Now yeah. I don't know whether you want to. Yeah. I, um, my first instinct instinct was to immediately bring up metabolism. Um, mm. so maybe we could just go, we maybe we could save that for a minute because we could save the sort of like, um, ecological thinking implications. Um, I really did appreciate the, um, explain explanation of, um, Marx's critique of religion um, and how that really doesn't necessarily apply to a critique of animistic forms of religion. Um, and although there are places where you can quote Marx as being critical of sort of like primitive animism, as you say, there are also points later in his life when he becomes more familiar with what some of these thought forms of thought are. Um, and the author implies that it's um, through an engagement that Marx has with sort of like animistic forms of thinking that also then lead him to reevaluate other th other things like the russian mirror for example um so it's clear that there is this sort of like evolution in marx's work and he's obviously contradictory as we've said before like there were many things places you can quote marx against marx right um but i do like that they br the author brings up this that sort of oft-cited quote about like religion being the opiate of the masses um and points out that what it is that Marx is criticizing is this sort of like separation that's experienced in religion, you know, um, criticizing uh, Christian religion as being there being this sort of like um, dualism between sort of heaven and earth kind of thing, um, which exists for Christian believers as both something which, or maybe we'll say Christian proletarians who are also Christians exists for them as something which is both a piece of propaganda something which is meant to lead them to accept their existence on earth because of the sort of rewards that come from heaven but also is um is a drug is something which um makes existence bearable kind of thing hence the reference to opium um but what the author is saying here is sort of like the 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 nature of animistic religion doesn't have that separation at all. It isn't experienced as um, uh, a split so much as a sort of like lived union kind of thing, um, which in some ways then brings us on to maybe also the question of um, 
the relationship to nature, right? And whether there is this split between nature or um, a unity between the two. Yeah, last thing on um, the religion stuff. Um, first of all, our second reading where Richard Dawkins gets bought up. I find that incredibly funny. I always get a laugh whenever I see his name. Um, but it is kind of, it's you're, you're totally right. It's like this idea of thinking of religion as a drug, this escape, but it's also like this otherworldliness, right? Like that's the word, that's the word that keeps getting bought up where it's like the spiritual realm is somewhere else and you're not going to be able to get there until you die. So just vaguely worship it. And that's about it. As opposed to exactly what you're saying, where there is like this monism, right? Monism, monism, um, where it kind of recognizes indigenous thought recognizes that, um, you are very much part of your ecology and part of your environment and part of your nature. Um, but, and yeah, I think we should get into the ecology stuff now. It doesn't go as far, and if that's the right way to say it, as something like deep ecology, right? So like deep ecology says there's absolutely no separation between you and and the birds and the water and everything else, the rocks, everything. Don't think about yourself as different at all. But Indigenous thought like actually takes us one step further in this relational thinking because it says, well, you can't really think about that because if if you think about everything just being the same man, you're going to lose sight of like the actual relations that you have with the rest of nature and the impact that you can have. And so again, it's so funny, like in our kind of like ecological red green thought journey where it's like, you know, your book chin, deep ecology stuff, your metabolic rift stuff, and then finally, you know, your Jason W. Moore stuff, like. It's funny because I feel like we've, we haven't come full circle, but we've definitely like kept, we've continued to go down the iceberg, right? And it's funny because I actually found this meshed maybe a little bit more with metabolic rift, but I think that the critiques of metabolic rift would probably be the same as the critiques of Marx's ecological thought um, in this. Uh, do you think that's fair? I mean, there's definitely very explicit reference to metabolism in this, right? Um, and I think maybe there's an extent to which I've never really understood um, the sort of usage of metabolism by Marxists, even by Marx or by... Um, or by us. Or by us. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the sense that uh, metabolism in this instance is just a relational thing, right? So although... Um, it, this piece uses the phrase metabolism a lot. I sort of do feel like there is um, an avoidance of both the dualism and the monism um, and something therefore reminiscent of uh, Jason Moore's efforts toward a sort of dialectical approach to the relationship between human humans and nature is being here ascribed to um, the sort of North American indigenous um, approach to um, the relationship between themselves and nature, which sort of like perhaps appears in the uh, animistic approach to religion kind of thing. Um, the author makes the point that um, humans and nature in that sort of like uh, animistic cultural tradition don't always have a purely... Um, united existence you know it is entirely possible to have the experience of uh um nature as being opposed to human beings and sort of creating that dichotomy um but what they say is for in that sort of cultural tradition it's indicative of um 
an imbalance it's indicative of a, a problem whereas they make the case that um capitalism's relationship to nature which is one of separation one of domination one of exploitation um is experienced by capitalism as sort of like well we've we um in our sort of like engagement with ecological thinking in the past we've seen that capitalism needs that exploitative relationship to nature right um so although for in indigenous philosophy and religion it's not a matter of like pure unity there's de very much a different relationship to um that rift or that dialectical relationship i suppose yeah it is it, it very much and this is something i found really refreshing it very much is open to the idea of disharmony and it's kind of like well you as an independent actor are able to intervene and it is kind of your role to kind of like end these disharmonies and just jumping back a bit at the very beginning the author kind of talks about um you know marx's quote about um uh living labor being dominated by dead labor right capital dominating concrete labor and like and you know you when you're at your job you're being controlled by profit which is basically just dead labor right um and it's also kind of connected to the indigenous idea of kind of like a haunting, right? Where And kind of this relationship of like time and the present versus the past, where in, in the past, in capitalism, the past haunts us. The past is this bad thing that dominates our lives and makes everything very bad. Capital is like the cause of a lot of the really horrible things in the world, and that is the dead labor coming to dominate here, right? But in indigenous thought, the past is something to kind of like relate to. And in this sense, you can kind of see why you would use this phraseology of like harmony versus disharmony, right? Um, and in that sense, you can think of capitalism as an immense accumulation of disharmonies, right? And that's what it does. It just accumulates disharmony. It's just a way of like ripping the environment apart, alienating you from nature, alienating you from your work, and just mass creating disharmonies on a mass scale. Um, and just as a side note, it's funny, I've been thinking about kind of like my relationship to like the past because like ancestral past is something in indigenous thought that is like you're in communication with right and it makes sense because you have like this regionally and spatially specific relationship to the land and to its historical past and to your historical past and i was kind of thinking about like my personal relationship to that and i was just like i don't have that at all like literally at all you know what i mean like my my mom is Australian. My dad is a white American. Like my dad's family don't really know too much about where they came from. A lot of them were orphans. We don't really know anything past a couple of generations. My mom's side, they were shipped over because they were like too poor to live in England. So they got fucking arrested and put on boats and sent to Australia where they became settlers. Right. And because of that, like my past is just, it's a fog. I like am just not able to connect to like any regionally specific or kind of like historically specific relations to you know to myself or to like the place that I was really raised and it's really fascinating in reading this like just how much of a disharmony that is just you know just floating just being like not really being able to ground yourself in space or in time and how again that's just like another one of these disharmonies I think the idea of capitalism as an accumulation of disharmonies is really fascinating to me and this whole idea of time is just like discussion of time was just like oh wow crazy <laughs> yeah i think i feel like you'd had a different experience of the 
questioning all the significance of time to this piece. I do sort of want to dig into that a little bit because um, I guess I don't really want to... I didn't get enough from reading this piece to know exactly what the indigenous American relationship to time was and how that what the bearing of that work relationship was on ancestry I suppose um, or whether it, it doesn't necessarily maybe you can overcome a relationship a sort of absent relationship to definitive um, biological ancestry through in this instance a relationship to um sort of imagined cultural ancestry and its relationship to an imagined uh, animized animistic rather conception of nature i suppose well i think um, i think so that, maybe i think maybe this gets in sorry but i think this gets into like ha whether or not your culture has been like really subsumed into capitalism and that's the relationship to time because like for someone living in Germany who's lived in the same village as their family has lived for the same thousand years, you would expect them to have the same relationship to the land and to their ancestry. But that isn't the case, right? Because Germany has been really subsumed into capitalism forever, right? So there's this interesting point of like, well, actually, indigenous thought and indigenous people in North America have not been. And so the relationship to their past is one of like, kind uh, utopian isn't quite the right word because again a lot of the indigenous thinkers quoted in this piece would be like look to the past don't necessarily look to the future because we had this you know what i mean but i think that's the relationship to time and ancestry maybe yes yeah yeah and i'm really pleased that you bring up the relationship to formal and real subsumption because i've kind of forgotten that element of the the puzzle but that that um those two pieces of terminology are very central to this um and sort of generally central to considerations of how to relate to um pre-capitalist critiques of capitalism or um critiques of capitalism that stem from people who have experienced the sort of like rupture in their lives that is the introduction of capitalism um but then there's they, i guess there's something about living under a real subsumption of capitalism which all of the relationships that that brings about the that stem from the wage labor relationship the relationship to commodities the relationship to capital in and of itself and needing to work for a wage to exist that put you very much in the very present moment of production and sort of separate you from any connection to um sort of alternative modes of economic existence kind of thing there's, there's it I, basically sort of one i wanted to try and tie it back to was the uh the actual nature of the capitalist mode of production which then um generates that uh alienation shall we call it like the ancestral alienation i suppose or the yes yeah, is it like spatial and temporal yeah, alienation yeah, yeah. i suppose yeah. um i sort of i think it's, it's nice to touch back on the idea of time because i was saying as i was saying the thing that i really took away from the engagement with time was um it made me experience more deeply or understand more fully why marx uses all of these kind of like gothic and baroque and kind of like uh 
sort of like fantastical pieces of terminology to relate to um, capitalist subjects' relationship to uh, commodities and to capital. Um, and I found it, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this idea of like a description of the capitalist subject's experience as being one whereby our living labor, our labor in the moment is sort of terrorized by the dead labor of the past. I presume in the form of capital commodities, i.e. in the requirement to uh, earn a wage, but also like do productive work, but also in our day-to-day engagement with other commodities um, that create this sort of like, create both uh, commodity fetishism and also the sort of like separation from other human beings as being jointly engaged in work and rather create this a relationship to uh commodities that leave us alienated from other human beings i suppose i mean i don't know marx is almost what in turn partly what i want to say is i really enjoyed that and then also i had this element of me that was sort of querying well whether is that in and of itself actually the conscious experience that capitalist subjects and proletarians are having or is it rather um a sort of like metaphorical explanation for the general alienation that we experience um i think it is probably i think it's probably the real experience because Uh and the only reason i was able i kind of say that is because if we think about like our preferred brand of post-capitalist organization which is you know like group of international communist labor time planning or whatever like that shows us why the distinction between concrete and abstract labor needs to be overcome, right? And how you can overcome it. Because under that system, it's time, measured by time. It's one hour for one hour, right? But under capitalism, like it's a completely unequal exchange. And so your labor is completely controlled by the abstract. It's controlled by socially necessary labor time and demands of productivity and even individual capitalists, your boss doesn't control that, right? Like that's just something that is just emergent on a level that none of you have any control over. And so when you're kind of able to remove that, then you can kind of see, I guess, that like that is what is actually meant by overcoming, you know, concrete versus the abstract, I guess, or like, I suppose that's kind of what I thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it does, it does bear relationship again to the idea of formal and real subsumption kind of thing. Um, and these criticisms... Or that let's say that the sort of like that critique of capitalism that I was just describing of Marx's, where he uses all these sort of like vampiric or ghostly references to describe our relationship to the commodity, right? Maybe that kind of criticism makes sense to somebody that's existing under a formal subsumption to capitalism. If we come, if we go to the idea of formal and real as being like a temporal thing, right? First, there is a formal subsumption, and then there is a real subsumption. Um, maybe that sort of like description of commodities as haunting and as uh, I can't think of other good synonyms, but you know, haunting, yeah, haunting, <laughs> grotesque, shall we say, or something like it is. Like, and it's funny because it, it, in... it, like it may, it, it, sorry, but it kind of it makes sense to somebody existing and where by in under conditions where they've seen their life world sort of like formally subsumed to the capitalist social relation, but whereby they're still living um, 
experientially, I suppose, under traditional means of production, as I suppose, as opposed to being fully subsumed to capitalism, which is the condition we're in now. And maybe that's why I had that experience to that description where I'm like, just do people actually experience the relationship to the commodity like this? Or is it that the alienation is so much deeper? Um, but then again, this sort of brings us on to what's to be learned from um, these ind- indigenous critiques of capitalism, right? It's not, it's not a lived memory of formal subsumption, perhaps, but it's definitely a sort of cultural and philosophical and religious memory of uh, the process of formal subsumption, which uh, can teach us really important things out about our contemporary existence, particularly if we live under a form of capitalism whereby we're so fully subsumed to it that um, we don't really even understand what it is anymore, at least on a totally. lived day-to-day experience kind of thing. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny that you bring up like those specific words because the help hold my hand helper book that I used to get through capital was the David Harvey. And in the very beginning of the Harvey's reading capital or whatever it's called, he's like, um, you know, you read these first couple chapters or even the first chapter and you're expecting Marx to be this uber materialist. And then he just hits you over the head with like spooky vampires and ghouls. And like you look at a commodity and you cannot possibly understand just by looking at it and turning it around what gives it value. There is like this, you have to engage in conceptual thinking to really fully understand what's going on with commodities and value. Um, And it's a very similar thing. This idea of haunting, I think it is actually like quite valid and quite apt. And I feel like Marx might actually even just use that word in some translations when he's talking about commodities. I'm really pleased that you bring up materialism because that's one of the things that I also thought we really need to touch on a little bit was like um, how Marx can be wrongly characterized as being maybe a vulgar materialist, like a, a positive materialist, somebody who's only interested in, whose who's approach to science is one of studying real physical objects in the world, uh, one which doesn't think that there is any sort of separation from our experience and those things whereas Marx are very much more in the vein of like um, there being a sensory separation from things but also there are social phenomena which are worthy of scientific study which don't actually have material existence in the world but they are material things by virtue of the impact that they have by which of the sort of like force that they have kind of thing like the nature of the commodity if you were going to approach it from a sort of like more vulgar scientific approach you'd end up as a maybe like a smithian or something where i don't know like i I don't know like you'd have a maybe a neoclassical approach to um to the commodity whereas marx has a much more uh, has a different form of materialist approach to it um, and it sort of that then brings us back to um, the authors, some of the authors' defenses of Marx against um, some indigenous thinkers' critiques of him, um, whereby the critique says that um, Marx is a, a scientific thinker, or a sort of positivist scientific thinker, and not a, and relentlessly critiques religion, relentlessly critiques pre-modern things. Um, and then champion sort of like science and uh, even elements of capitalism as being in its based on a sort of teleological reading. And what the author says, no, no, like 
there might be these references to Marx's critique of religion, but really what Marx spends most of his time doing is critiquing the secular world. You know, he's critiquing secular, maybe what I was just describing as vulgar materialist um, forms of analysis. He doesn't spend all of his time belittling the pre-modern and the, the, I don't know, the religious or the primitive, quote unquote. Mm. Yeah, this is why Marx is like, you need to go down into the hidden abode of production or whatever, right? Like you need to descend, right? Uh Um, Yeah, all very, very good. I think, should we, I kind of want to return to the ecology stuff. Should we we do that? Um, So there are a series of thinkers in here who get cited um, to discuss kind of like the indigenous relation to nature as such, right? Um, And I'm going to quote some of them at length just because it is worth hearing it straight from them. One of them is Viola Viola Cordova, who says, basically, in describing this kind of monism that we've been discussing, everything that exists is perceived as being the manifestation of one particular thing. In effect, everything that is, is one thing. The oneness is ascribed to the fact that everything is essentially the life force, right? And so it's funny because like the popular culture representation of specifically of like Native Americans in media is just one of like, you know, uh, the plains and the buffalo, this respect that we have for nature. And it's not like actually engaging with what is actually being stated here, which is like, well, I'll get to it here in a second, because there's a quote from someone named Luther Standing Bear here. And this is going to be kind of the one that I quote at length. It is particularly heavy. Um, so in kind of like in an effort to kind of explain this monism and explain what is meant by disharmonies and haunting, I'll read this. So Luther Standing Bear says, The white man does not understand the Indian for the reason that he does not understand America. He's too far removed from its formative processes. The roots of the tree of life has not yet grasped the rock in the soil. The white man is still troubled with primitive fears. He still has in his consciousness the perils of this frontier continent, some of its vastness not yet having yielded to his questing footsteps and inquiring eyes. He shudders still with the memory of the loss of his forefathers upon its scorching deserts and forbidding mountaintops. The man from Europe is still a foreigner and an alien, and he still hates the man who questioned his path across the continent. But the Indian is, but in the Indian, the spirit of the land is still vested. And then moving on at another point, he says, we do not think of the great open plains, the beautiful rolling hills, the winding streams with tangled growth as wild. Only to the white man was nature a wilderness, and only to him the land infested with wild animals and savage people. To us, it was tame. Earth was bountiful, and we were surrounded with the blessings of the great mystery, not until the hairy man from the east came, and with brutal frenzy heaped injustices upon us, and the families we loved was it wild for us. When the very animals of the forest began fleeing from his approach, then it was for us that the Wild West began. Pretty fucking brutal, and I think that that really gets to the heart of what is being discussed by Viola Cordova, Luther Standing Bear, Winona LaDuke, a lot of these people. In, in just kind of really trying to understand, like, you know, you really only need to look at what capitalism and the social relations of our time are doing to our ecology to see that this is just absolutely correct. And this idea that there's nothing to be learned from, like, so-called primitive peoples and these ways of life that have, you know, been held over from, like, pre-settler times in the United States is just absolutely absurd because... You know, it's so funny, like when we approached the Jason W. Moore and the um, the John Bellamy Foster and all of the different ecological stuff, and specifically, I think the Murray Bookchin, when we read about ecology, 
our minds are blown about the ways in which they discuss our relationship to nature and our relation to ecology. And it's so funny because we're like, how long does it take for like settlers to figure it out? You know what I mean? This stuff has always been there. It's so funny. It's like, we've been looking for this, like, how can we consider our relationship to nature? We need to get into systems theory to really understand this. And it's just like, well, it's always been there. And it is this idea of acting in harmony and this kind of monism. But it's funny because it isn't, as I said before, it isn't the monism very specifically of deep ecology. It's a monism that gives you agency, but an agency to kind of like, you know, understand the world and to help it through its disharmonies, if that makes sense. It's it's really beautiful, but it's also just like really enlightening, I think. I Yeah, I, I, those those quotes, specifically from Viola Cordova and um, Luther Standing Bear, I was just like, oh, okay, it's been there this whole time. <laughs> What I liked in this piece, it was the the description of the settler critique of settler colonialism. Um, and you can relate it to that description of pre-colonial America being wild and untamed. And that, therefore, the population that existed there also being primitive and wild somehow. Um, but the danger is that if you're going to take a deep green approach, what you do is celebrate rarify that wildness and demand a return to that and overlook the fact that what was in that piece right was that actually there were relations that existed there like um it wasn't a monistic existence it wasn't that um the human beings that existed there were purely part of nature and then by virtue of the um physical act of colonialism but then also the imposition of capitalist values they were sort of like wretched away from that but no like they stood separate from and in relation to nature all throughout history and if there is there is a danger of forgetting that and having a sort of like utopian approach to um reading that existence i suppose yeah totally absolutely and it's funny because i think that for a time i at least was like found the deep ecology stuff like this is it this is like so fascinating like not maybe specifically as far as deep ecology but like book chin and the kind of like dialectical relationship to nature um which this actually does have definitely as you said before a relationship to kind of dialectical thinking viola cordova specifically describes i think human beings as like the sum of their relations right and there's not like for her and for maybe indigenous thought as a whole, there's no like abstract species essence, right? Of humanity. It's just, you are the total of your relations. Um, and it, it's interesting though, because if she understands that like that definition like varies, right? And it, and specifically it varies based on where you are in like space time. And I think that when we're talking about like relationally specific relations to nature and this idea of relation making, this is something that can be really helpful in actually understanding what a post-capitalist world could look like. Because again, we want to get away from this forced homogenization that capitalism has, whether it is through abstract time or abstract like space, because maybe it doesn't actually make sense to do what the capitalists did in the 1800s and just create abstract space with um, energy production for the sole purpose of just being able to put coal powered plants in the middle of town, right? Like, Maybe that doesn't actually make sense. Maybe you need to consider where you are. And when it comes to food production, like that's a hugely important thing, right? Like maybe you don't want to be eating strawberries in the, in February if you live in Norway. You know what I mean? Like 
the idea of like getting away from this homogenization is something that you see in indigenous thought. But again, you also see it in Marx. And it's it's also in this piece that that thought is carried through to describing how it impacts our political organizing, right? And they go on to say that we need that sort of one Marxism isn't part of a homogenizing force, or at least it shouldn't be. I mean, perhaps it has been in the past, but it definitely shouldn't be. Um, what um, a Marxist politics that in, that sort of learns from and intersects other political and cultural traditions should do and learn to be is one which also accepts that diversity. Um, and one of Marx's core critiques of um, capitalism was the degree to which it homogenized and it sort of stamped out um, individualism and um, and actually therefore as Marxists we should uh, celebrate diversity and um, celebrate individualism and we can draw some of that critique of contemporary society from um, some of these um, indigenous philosophies but also we can draw that stuff into our political organizing and say no we shouldn't be trying to homogenize everybody into one type of thought but rather work out how we can work relationally with uh different types of uh activists from particular different sort of schools of thinking kind of thing maybe ones that stand outside of marxism to some degree sure yeah i mean exactly and this was as you're saying like this was i think reflected in marx's actual political activity in really not trying to impose any ideas onto the working class and in this idea that gets bought up here of like leading by obeying, right? Like you go to the working class, you hear what their struggles are, you orient them towards socialism, but you really have to understand not just for like moral reasons or because it's the right thing to do or whatever, but for practical reasons. Like if you actually want to organize the working class, you need to actually listen to them and understand like what the issues are instead of just trying to create against like forced homogenization of like a workers movement a la you know, early 1900s Germany or, you know, Russia, right? It's like, I don't know, again, like you need to adapt to where you are spatially and temporally, I suppose. Um, yeah. The, the, the only other thing I'll say on, on the ecology stuff is um, the kind of discussion of Marx's ecology here, which I found summed up really, really well. Because again, when we're like, Viola Cordova specifically talks about this idea of relation making and a participatory existence in your reality, where you are, when you are, that kind of thing, and with nature, right? Like, uh, Nadrata here really makes the point that, like, uh, indigenous science is participatory. It is existing, it is being there, it's a, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but Marx kind of accepts this relation-making dialectical attitude between humans and nature and this idea of the metabolism, right? But then Marx then turns around and then kind of differs from indigenous thought by saying, okay, now humans have the ability to become the rational mediators of, of this metabolism and of nature through socialism. They can't do it under capitalism because everybody's controlled by production. But once we get socialism, then we'll be able to, humans will be the rational mediators and everything will be fine. And it's easy to see how that's very anthropocentric, but I kind of find it hard to fault Marx there because Marx was coming to these questions kind of secondarily i suppose in that he was studying class and he was studying capital and then understood that oh you actually kind of need to study ecology as well if you want to understand the world fully because our nature is our material substratum as he says right and so that's kind of you know 
that's where he then comes from. Okay, so then once we get socialism, then we as humans can solve the ecological question, as opposed to it being this kind of participatory relation making and really drawing that out to its logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know where I come down on that. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know is what there, you think. Is there a distinction there between first we have revolution and then we overcome the uh, the ecological rift or the revolutionary process is also a process that overcomes mm. an ecological rift kind of thing? Is that a valuable distinction to make? No, I, I, think, I think it definitely is because I think it also puts the participation of the working class directly front and center in the revolution as opposed to it being something opposed on it, right? Um, yeah. yeah. I, also, I also wonder whether um, the distinction between Marx's more um, anthropocentric reading of human beings overcoming some bounds set up on it by the relationship between the relationship to nature and also the conditions of existence under capitalism um whether that's a necessary thing to um imagine for our future given that we still want to perhaps be able to continue to exist in industrial society to maintain populations of many billions of people on the planet kind of thing what is our relationship to nature going to be under those conditions um and is it given that we're going to have to have certain technological fixes to certain ecological problems that might come about under socialism as much as they would under capitalism um the question of how to sustainably feed people say um might need a technological fix more than it does a uh like degrowth a a deep yeah rather than a degrowth degrowth approach or like a permaculture approach or something like like <laughs> yeah well i think um, i think specifically and, and, and sorry and, and does that distinction does that requirement technological requirement cut through does it does it does it intersect with that distinction we were just making between marx's anthropocentrism and a kind of like indigenous um i don't know what the alternative is um but a sort of indigenous approach or Am I just applying the wrong? Am I, am, I, am I applying that Marxism, that distinction between Marxism and indigenous thinking, incorrectly to that case? I don't know. Well, I think I think I definitely when there were quotes in here about like why would we look to the future? We can just look to the past. That's where socialism was. I was like, I completely understand why that's being said. But again, as you say, like we are in a technologically different time, and we have a lot more people, and we will need to, you know do certain things that weren't around back then, i.e. Yeah. factories, mass farming, things like that. But I actually think that indigenous thought is a really good answer to this in terms of ecology, because it basically says it accepts that you are going to create not necessarily disharmonies, maybe disharmonies, but like you are going to just by existing have an effect on your environment and your ecology. And it's up to you to really sustainably do that to limit these um, these so-called disharmonies, right? Because like even the act of farming no matter how sustainable it is, you're imposing a different state on the world than would otherwise exist. But I don't think anyone would be like farming's bad. It's about how you do it. It's about the relationship that you have to your ecology. It's about making sacrifices and thinking about it because right now we can't think about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess the most technological solution to any ecological problem or any human maybe not even ecological problem but ecological question or question of human beings relationship to nature any technological solution to that is still 
a form of relationship relation making um and a, and and a relation that i suppose is made through the oikios right through the, through the <laughs> i'm going to try and use that piece of terminology and see if it makes sense uh, it's it's a relationship that that is created through a, a, a dual relationship between nature and humans and humans and nature regardless of how technological it is or um how how much control we seemingly think we have over the process um it's still a relational one um in a Maurian sense, I suppose. People exist. <laughs> People exist. Is what I'm yes. It's funny, this yeah. stuff really ties together the more stuff and the metabolic rift. Marx is thought um, and kind of deep ecology in a really fascinating way. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really impressed. I can't help but feel that like, it's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, there you go. And it is, it's like common sense. It's like, God damn, I'm so brainwashed that I can't even have figured that one out, Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing on that I'll say is there's a brief discussion of Winona LaDuke and her idea of Wendigo economics, which I thought was really interesting. And just quickly on this, this is exactly what we've been talking about. This is this idea of nature turned in on itself. It's, it's a comparison to the Wendigo, which is ancient mythology or old mythology, I should say, about, um, you know, this cannibalistic beast called the Wendigo that comes about and creates all of this fucked up disharmony and is scary and nobody likes um, and is uncontrollable and cannibalistic and all of these bad things. And so Winona LaDuke basically says that that is what capitalism is. It's a system that turns on itself. It's the subject coming to dominate itself. Um, and then the author Nadrada here uses that as a jumping off point to criticize um, bourgeois settler preservationists, which I thought was really fascinating, specifically John Muir, which... I don't know, it's kind of antithetical to just like me to ever have heroes. But I think, you know, growing up, John Muir was as close to a hero as I've like ever had. And so I was like, oh, no, not, no, I'm gonna have to kill my hero, not John Muir. But you know, this idea of like more of preservation and creating these marble gardens as like, it's so funny. It's like, we everything is abstract space, everything is, you know, homogenized over. And so here's like the homogenous nature and you can go look at it and mm -hmm. there's one here and there's one five miles away there and go look at nature and don't fucking touch anything. Don't fuck it up. You know, it's so funny that the idea of, it, but they put forward as marble gardens. I think I really liked that. Yeah. As if we can then go off and create mega city one and just destroy <laughs> the environment everywhere else as if, <laughs> as if the environments are somehow separate kind of thing. I mean, maybe, maybe we just dome them over and uh, <laughs> yeah, and that maybe we can, <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, yeah. And, and still until we successfully sort of like dome over all of the national parks of the u.s um, maybe it's the simpsons movie answer we just yes. need to dome over ourselves and leave nature yeah. to just do its thing yeah what are you gonna do so yeah i mean then just the last thing on this is that what do we take away from this nadron makes the point that we need to understand that in political organizing you're going to not you're not going to have a homogenous uh, group of perfectly rank and file workers. There are going to be differences and specifically you cannot, it would be like the most fucked up thing on the planet to expect to homogenize uh, indigenous communities and reservations into your working class movements without listening to them or just doing it at all. Right. And the phrase that's used here is um, unity and difference, a coalition of unity and difference. Whereas bourgeois, bourgeois, bourgeois unity is called, um, homogenous genocide which i think is completely fair 
Um, so yeah, unity and difference. I was like, oh yeah, okay, there you go. There's yeah. a political question answered. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sorted. <laughs> sorted. Yeah, I hadn't really. Yeah, it's it's. Um, uh, yeah, I had I'd never really thought about the folly of imagining a um, normative political subject and then just sort of like forcing or expecting everybody to conform to that and taking no interest in anybody that doesn't fall into that category. Um, of course, that is what Marxist political parties in the past have done. Um, so it's definitely a political tradition that needs reckoning with. And uh, yeah, this is a valuable commentary on it. So yeah and specifically in north america right where it's yeah. like if you're like yeah, yeah, yeah how could you not see industrialization as just another further encroachment by fucking europeans you know what i mean it's like oh great now you want us to all work in factories and be socialists great yeah no that's perfect mm -hmm. but it, it's but it comes back to what's very clearly criticized in this piece as being um as sort of mistaking or sort of incorporating elements of capitalism into your socialism or into your, um, yeah, into your future society or into your vision of socialism or whatever. Actually, you accidentally maintain elements of capitalism um, because you've taken a te teleological approach, I suppose, or a technological approach or um, because you haven't accepted the diversity of the constituency you're going to have to capture to your socialist project, I suppose. Um, you accidentally carry elements of capitalism along and it sort of corrupts your movement in the future, which we've seen happen, clearly. So. Totally. Yeah. It's, again, it's this idea that even though the proletariat is simultaneously within and against capital, right? You And Marx understood this. Like, you do run the risk of proletarians, like, projecting themselves because they are of capitalism onto socialism, right? Onto communism in the future, Um you don't want to do that. That's why you got to stay away from this market socialism stuff. Because, um, you know, what are you going to do? It's no good. We'll always come back to capitalism. Anyway, um, really good. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. I'm really pleased to take away from this piece the idea that you can both combine uh, a sort of imminent critique of capitalism based on the lived experience of existing in it and also take inspiration from pre-capitalist um forms of existence and critique it from capitalism from that standpoint as well and um this piece very explicitly says you can take both and combine them um well, yeah which is a very useful thing to hear i think rather than yeah. i think that you have one or the other totally and i think it's really the only way that you can actually convince settlers to you know not be such assholes because it's like if you just try and beat them over the head with like, you should feel guilty, you suck, you, your family settled this place, look at you, you're on rightful like Chumash land or whatever, like, eh, working class people aren't going to listen to you. You know what I mean? They're just going to be alienated and feel bad. But if you really do try and explain, give them the historical background and give them this understanding of like, we're all of capitalism, um, but we can learn from these like previous things, as well as like your own lived experience of projecting that or not projecting that, but like, you know, onto the future um i think that's really the only way that you can kind of convince people yeah and i've just sort of realized now i think one of the reasons why i always find um reading and learning about the transition from feudalism to capitalism so vitally important is because it really does teach you important things about what capitalism is and also i think it's only with that with a, a certain narrative around that process in mind that you can then go and talk to people about um why capitalism is so bad having some looking being able to make an argument about 
capitalism didn't didn't always exist and here are the negative things that it brought in and these are the things that it did can then also give you a narrative about what it continues to do um, it's important i think to put capitalism in a historical context and that's why it's always really important and vital to look to that transition and learn from it and incorporate try sort of like test those arguments when you're talking to people kind of thing um, because in my experience it's quite a powerful powerful thing to be able to say uh capitalism hasn't always existed um, and sort of in the process of explaining its historical specificity you can sort of combine that historical specificity with a present imminent critique um which makes uh propagandizing i think all the easier yeah for sure absolutely i mean I, for one, was always under the impression, again, that history just existed in a vacuum. But I mean, I guess I've grown this entire time. <laughs> what are you going to do? What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? And also just like, what a what a font of wisdom to just have this, like, you know, these philosophies from a time that aren't just pre-capitalist. They're like from an actual communal time. Like, mm-hmm. if you're a Marxist, you're not taking that seriously. Like, fuck off. Oh, my God. It's, it's like so fascinating. Because even like what Marx was saying about the peasant mirror, right, as being like, having a potential uh for being like projecting this communalism onto a post-capitalist future like just think about it's the same thing but it's like just actual communalism it's just like wow actually existing socialism (laughs) yeah all right well everybody go fucking listen to this um or go read it you can go read it well like i said we'll have the links you can go listen to it um because there's the recording um and again this is stuff we should be taking seriously um yeah. And I think you'll find something in this, no matter what you like, if you like the transition stuff, if you like the ecology stuff, if you're one of those sickos, if you like economics and that kind of thing, it's all in here. So it's mm. very, very good. If you're a Stalinist, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I did, yeah. If you are a Stalinist and you're listening to this show, let us know. <laughs> I think that'd be very funny. Let yeah. us know. Email us. Send, yeah, send, us, send us a question. You might be in our <laughs> next mailbag us. section. <laughs> Where will you hide when we come for you? Uh, okay well Dan that has been lovely um, yeah, thank you again for this and um, for listening we'll see you next time yeah thank you Jack bye bye everyone the music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard if you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa, whoa, whoa.